Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Deborah Arnold in this episode. Deborah is National and International Projects Coordinator at ONEJ, the Association of Universities for the Development of Digital Education and Economics and Management. She is now Chair of the Eden Fellows Council following a long association with the network and is also an expert in digital education leadership. I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Arnold, a specialist in digital education leadership following an extensive career in online teaching, learning technology, research and higher education management. Deborah is also involved in governance of international professional associations and she's based in Dijon, France. Uh, Great to be talking with you again, Deborah. Lovely to be talking to you, Mark. Yes, thank you very much for the invitation. I think last time we really talked, we were in Barcelona uh, at an Eden event. It must have been about four years ago. Yeah, that would be right. Four or five years ago, yes. Yeah, I remember having lunch with you. Uh, strange to be meeting on the other side of the world now. Yes, yes. We've uh, quite, a, quite a few miles or thousand miles between us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Deborah, can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Yeah, of course. It's quite interesting because uh, recently with a a group of colleagues uh, that I met on Twitter, in fact, uh, we had a session where we did what we called a techno-auto-ethnography. And it's a really interesting way to make sense of your career and professional identity. So my background uh, is in teaching English as a foreign language. And that's where I began using media, computer-assisted language learning back in the 1990s. Um, And to be totally honest, the media resources that we used at the time were pretty poor. So I thought, well, this is a chance to learn how to actually make better multimedia learning resources. We were using audio cassettes and uh, VHS cassettes at the time. Mm. I did a master's in um, communication and media production um, after that and then went into higher education uh, on the audiovisual production side. So I was an audiovisual production assistant. And then when e-learning took off in the 2000s, I became a a European project manager in that field and then moved universities to to lead the distance education and um, audiovisual production learning technology unit. Everything was in one unit. And then At that time, there was a big restructuring. And to put it lightly, I wasn't very happy with some of the decisions made where they thought that a unit like ours should be within IT. Um, And uh, so that's really where the the PhD was born in terms of looking at um, what comes into making these strategic decisions and uh, what kind of attitudes and behavior uh, higher education leaders at different levels should have in order to bring back that focus on learning and teaching. So yeah, the past five years have been spent on the PhD, which I got from uh, Universitat Oberta de Catalunya, WOC uh, in Barcelona, Mm -hmm. studying as part-time learner myself. I also left the university at more or less the same time, and I now work as National and International Projects Coordinator at ONEJ, which is the Digital 
university for management and economics. Now, we're not a university, we're an association, a member association which supports other universities uh, in developing digital education and open educational resources. Um, I'm involved in quite a few international organisations. So uh, recently I was elected chair of the Eden Fellows Council, uh, the body which brings together everybody who's received an Eden Fellows or Senior Fellows Award since 1997. So a big body of expertise there. And we have the, the Fellows Council, which has just set up a, a mentoring programme as well, which is a really exciting initiative uh, for helping the Eden community benefit from the expertise and experience of those on the Fellows Council. Excellent. So digital education leadership, um, something that I'm sure was always an issue, uh, but I think it's becoming more and more a necessity now that organisations take the online learning element side of things more, more seriously. What was your thesis about? Can you give us a bit of a nutshell in terms of what you investigated and also what you found? The, the topic was digital education leadership literacies for higher education, uh, which has become the acronym DELHE now, D-E-L-L-H-E. So what I did was I took two existing frameworks, one developed by uh, Professor Jill Jameson in the UK, which mm -hmm. was on e-leadership for educational technology, yeah. And uh, another framework which was more generic to leadership, uh, which was developed by Heather Davis in Australia, uh, her framework of leadership literacies, which are these um, mindsets and attitudes on the one side and uh, actions and behaviours on the other. And that relates to uh, all the multiliteracies work of the, the New London group as well. So... Um, that's where the whole thesis was designed around how to merge these two frameworks, uh, grounding that in, uh, in empirical research. So I went through a Delphi study at the beginning. Then I did three case studies in European uh, campus-based universities because that was the focus. I did a survey with academics. I was doing mixed methods. And uh, I analysed leadership development programmes as well to see how the framework was reflected in those. Uh, and then I rounded it off with a focus group to validate the final framework and uh, a series of recommendations for leadership development mm. in the field, obviously, mm. of digital education leadership. Mm. So what are some things that digital education leaders should really know about? What, what is it that we are getting fundamentally wrong in our practice? I think if you look at the, the five dimensions that actually come from Heather Davis's work and that were reinforced through the, uh, the work in this, in this research, a little bit in each of the five dimensions, I'd say the first one is the worldly dimension, which is all about our relationship to the world, relationship to the digital world. Uh, it concerns values, strategy, how we view technology, how we view pedagogy. Um, and, and to what extent those are embedded into, into mindsets and also into strategy. And I think that sophisticated vision of the, the digital world is, is, is often lacking. I think that uh, especially higher up the, the, the leadership levels in, in higher education, there's very much, um, let's say, this, this vision that, that technology is going to solve all the problems <laughs> and that often the solutions are to be found in commercial technologies rather than um, more bespoke applications developed directly for um, higher education. Obviously, you've got to weigh up the pros and cons of those. 
and and I think by putting uh, the actual teaching and learning at the at the forefront, that that really helps in the in the decision making. What the, what I saw from the case studies was where that had happened, it was quite successful. I would highlight one of the other dimensions as well. We're not going to talk about all five of them, obviously, this, today, but uh, the sustaining dimension, which mm. covers the um, environmental impact of decisions about technology choices and also the human impact. So um, ethics, I think, is a really, really big thing if you're looking at learning analytics. Who does it serve? Um, who is harmed by it, and also then the financial aspect, so that triple bottom line of sustainability, if you like, which comes in there. Um, and then, of course, leadership development, more and more and more leadership mm. development. Mm. So you're obviously publishing on your PhD as well, uh, and you've certainly done a few presentations about it. We'll, we'll link to some of those uh, through the show notes. You've researched um, before your PhD as well. What, what about some of your earlier work? What, what sort of things have you uh, placed in the public sphere for others to learn from? Um, a lot of the things that I was publishing before were related to European projects that I was uh, coordinating or involved in as a partner. So fr from the very early days, um, things about teacher training, continuous professional development, uh, again around uh, digital education. Other focus has been on transversal skills employability, transversal skills and employability are very important priorities for the European Commission. And more recently, work on open virtual mobility, um, again, from a skills and competences perspective. What do learners need to be able to do in order to get the most out of a, an open virtual mobility experience? And also uh, support for teachers in, uh, in welcoming students who are uh, engaged in uh, virtual mobility or open virtual mobility. And then the latest one, a lot of work on uh, digital micro-credentials. Mm. Tell us a bit about that, micro-credentials. Uh, they've got quite a, a topical element to them. Yes, yeah, somebody said that 2022 was the year of the micro-credential. Uh, it's a bit like the year of the MOOC, isn't it, 10 years ago? I think there's a certain lack of clarity in some people's minds as to what we mean when we talk about micro-credentials. I like to, first of all, clarify the object of what we're talking about when we say micro-credentials. So is it the actual learning opportunity in the sense of the course, you know, sign up for this micro-credential in artificial intelligence? Or are we talking about the artifact, which is the digital representation of uh, a set of uh, achievements uh, in terms of skills and competences, mm. um, knowledge as well, that uh, a learner gains and, and can put forward as a credential uh, from having um, achieved the outcomes of a, of a learning opportunity? And if you look at some of the definitions, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Beverly Oliver's work for uh, for UNESCO, the focus really is on the, the, the credential as the artifact. So what information do we put in it uh, to give value to, to learners rather than using micro-credential as a synonym for a short learning course? In terms of size, a digital micro-credential is size uh, neutral, it's size independent. Again, I think uh, the, the way that these micro-credentials are going to be recognised in, in the wider public sphere will, I think, lead to some um, harmonisation of the, of the duration. Um, 50 hours is quite a lot. In Europe, we have the European Credit Transfer System, the ECTS system, um, and even the duration of uh, learning 
for, for an ECTS varies amongst European member states, but it all hovers around um, somewhere between 25 to 30 hours. Uh, so I think in our context in Europe, one ECTS would be um, a good benchmark for a micro-credential. But I know that, for example, in the European MOOC consortium, they've decided on a, a much larger number of hours for a micro-credential uh, in terms of recognition between mm. um, higher education institutions. I think it depends on the purpose as well. I mean, how long do you need to gain a particular um, skill in yeah. a particular field? Mm. Mm. And I think a focus more on the learning outcomes rather than on the duration of learning would be a step forward because different learners are going to need different lengths of time to to get similar achievements and that's perfectly normal. Mm, absolutely. So you have finished the PhD, you've got a lot of historical research under your belt. What projects are you working on at the moment? Um, still continuing on the micro-credentials field. Also, that's more on the on the project side. One of the areas that came out from uh, from my research, which was a very very small part, but which is really taking off right now, uh, is this concept of third space, developed by Celia Whitchurch uh, back in two thousand and eight. I think her per first publication on that was, and it's all about the space in which professional staff and uh, academic staff come together to collaborate on um, the improvement of teaching and learning. So people like academic developers, educational developers, but also learning technologists and audiovisual multimedia staff. And third space is all about the identity, in fact, of those third space professionals. So on one level, you could see it as on the strategic level, how a university would create that space and recognize that the work that is done in that space. And then the other angle is more on a professional identity, legitimacy of those third space professionals. So that's something I'm hoping to um, explore further in the future. Great. Well, Deborah, we made it to mid-2022, uh, which is just <laughs> really quite an achievement, I think. What, what are your observations about online learning and education at the present time? Ah, <laughs> Okay, well, I don't think we can uh, talk about being mid-2022 without talking about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and what is being called the post-pandemic period. I think this is, uh, people are, are, are wishing themselves out of it, um, but we know it hasn't really gone away. One of the things I've observed and that I'm particularly concerned about is this pushback against online learning, pushing the on-campus experience and a lot of the arguments against online learning because what was done during the pandemic was more what we call emergency remote teaching rather than purposefully designed intentional online learning. Um, I'm sure you agree with me there. I think there are a lot of economic reasons for this, especially in countries like the US and, and um, England where you've got a business model of uh, universities which is very much designed around um, providing on-campus services. Uh, you've got high levels of tuition fees, got students who are more consumers um, and so who expect a certain level of service which has been sold to them. So I think there's a lot of work that we have to do in our field, again, to get the research out there of what works, what is good online learning, and it's not necessarily everything that we saw uh, done in a, in a rush with very little thought uh, during the pandemic. Of course, it's, it's understandable 
Um, although what uh, what we did see was that those universities who had developed a sound pedagogical model around technology, uh, who had put time and effort and money into staff development, actually fared much better during the pandemic because everything was in place there. So I think that recognition of, of teaching at comparable levels to the recognition of research is something that still needs to be pushed for. I mean, I remember talking about this 20 years ago and, and very little has changed there. Mm-hmm. What I do like very much is the work of Lou Mycroft in the UK. Now, she's in further education, but I think a lot of what she does can be transposed to, to higher education. And it helps this, this thinking. She calls it the practice of values. So you decide on a, on a value, let's say equity because, uh, or inclusion. Inclusion is uh, something very, very close to um, the hearts of people in, in distance education, yeah. uh, as we know. And then you take a practice such as learning analytics and then you say, so what might learning analytics look like as a practice of inclusion? Mm. And by framing those practices in terms of the values that uh, we all endeavour to uphold, I find that that opens up possibilities that we would not be imagining otherwise. Uh, and so I invite people listening to this and perhaps yourself just to, to do it as an exercise. Mm. So thank you, Lou Mycroft, for that. <laughs> <laughs> and that, of course, links back quite nicely to the um, whole element of leadership here as well. Uh, actually having some sort of sense of purpose and direction underpinned by an ethical framework uh, and a vision to actually make something different, make something new, make something better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would digital education look like as a practice of respect, for example? Yeah, excellent. So, Deborah, it sounds like then this next question is going to be a really interesting one. What research would you most like to see? If you had an, a limitless budget uh, and the ability to sway any ethics uh, approval group to um, say yes to anything you wanted, what would you commission? Um, one of the exciting developments I've seen very recently is the concept of entangled pedagogy which has been developed by Tim Fawns. Um, and it really takes us beyond that unhelpful pedagogy-technology dichotomy. So I think um, if we could get lots and lots of researchers taking that up and, and moving, moving forward in, in that area, that would be fantastic. I mentioned third space earlier, so I won't go into that, but I think there does need to be much more work around third space. And perhaps the area closest to my heart so if I could get the funding uh, for, for a project on that, it would be uh, digital education leadership development. Uh, so I'm not talking about isolated workshops or online courses on leadership development here. Um, I'm taking the view that leadership development should be done as, uh, as longer term interventions um, and other colleagues in the field, I think it's Sue Dobson and colleagues, uh, identified that there was a real lack of research on the longer term impact of leadership development. So this would be like a kind of action research project accompanying um, particular higher education institutions over time, taking a whole institution approach to leadership development and getting a lot more empirical data um, on what works and that impact over time. Mm, mm. I'm fascinated by the thought of pedagogical entanglement. I mean, it sounds quite um, quantum physics based. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can perhaps share the link to the to the article. Afterwards. Yeah, yeah, P possibly with its own internal paradoxes. So coming back to the leadership one, so action research, 
What would success look like? What would you actually uh, expect to see in areas where leadership has been um, optimal? A change in strategy, mm-hmm. a change in practice and a change in mindsets um, across the board. So not just the mindsets of leaders, but uh, attitudes towards technology, attitudes towards ethics and the um, environmental concerns. Um, so that's, I think, the, the, the change management angle of it. And then actual changes in practice, how you measure those is a question for that research project to, to work out um, yeah. in, in designing it. Because, uh, yeah, it's very, very difficult to measure that s- such impact. So you, you'd have to identify, I think, uh, are you going to use uh, student outcomes as, as a measure for that? Is that the appropriate measure? Uh, I'm sure you could you could you could actually measure the the recognition of teaching in uh, practices of career development for for staff, the level of integration of those ethical and environmental issues as well in the, in the strategy. Mm-hmm. So, is is change uh, in e-learning, digital education leadership? Is that evidenced by more use of technology, or perhaps some clever use of technology? Maybe even less use of technology. Well, maybe even less use of technology. I mean, I don't know if you've been following the work of Neil Selwyn, who's arguing for, um, uh, well, that, that consideration of the environmental impact of, of technology choices. So do we need all this video? Is it, is it accessible to people? What Neil's saying is on the one hand, uh, we have a world of finite resources, and so we have to be more cautious uh, and less ambitious in the actual amount of technology we use. But then again, with all the uh, challenges that the world is going to face with displaced populations due to climate disaster, due to war that we're seeing um, already, uh, that online learning will be necessary to give these uh, displaced populations access to education. So it's a fine balance. Mm. It certainly is. Dear, I'm going to try and put you on the spot here. You, you've been um, a, a critic and theorist in digital education leadership. Can you tell us about an example where you've seen it done really well, um, perhaps a, a small case study or even just a small incident you've noticed that just really epitomised what digital education leadership should be? I could give um, a couple of examples from the, from the case studies that I, that I did in, in Europe. And now the thesis is published, I can actually name the institutions as well. So um, the first example is the University of Northampton uh, in the United Kingdom, in England, mm-hmm. where they developed this bespoke pedagogical model called active blended learning. That was actually developed by um, Alejandro Armelini um, for the University of Northampton. So they, they took a whole institution approach to the pedagogical model yeah. and applied that. Now, it didn't always go down perfectly. There was a lot of misunderstanding. People thought that they were going to be an online, uh, an open university, but no, it's active blended learning. So it's embedded into the, the campus experience. Yeah. Um, now, what they did have as well was uh, the opportunity and the funding to build a brand new campus as part of a, a regeneration action for the for the city of Northampton. And so they designed the campus around that pedagogical model. Um, and then so you might say, well, what happened with, with so much reliance on that physical space? What happened when the pandemic happened? Hmm. But because that pedagogical change was already embedded, 
all the teaching staff were familiar with the online environment. They had complementary resources there. And the shift to, to online because of the pandemic was actually very, very smooth because mm. that pedagogical change had already happened. Now, you might say that's a one-off because not every university has that funding to build a campus around a pedagogical model. Uh, but there are still opportunities you know, if you're building um, a, a new amphitheater, you have to ask yourself why. Uh, what purpose is it going to solve? Is that money better spent doing something else to further the the case and the opportunities for, for online and, and, and digital learning for, for the student population? Mm. Um, another example is uh, KU Leuven, so in Belgium, in Flanders, yep. which is a more traditional uh, multi-site, multi-campus university. Uh, so that idea of the single campus is obviously not relevant for them. Their uh, digital education strategy is absolutely fascinating. Um, and so they designed their model around uh, a networked organization. So bringing together the uh, teaching and learning support staff, uh, the academics, uh, the learning technologists, the multimedia production, and calling this the Leuven Learning Lab, which is designed to facilitate interaction uh, and projects on the strategic level. Uh, so two very different examples, but both with solutions that were particularly relevant to their context. And it sounds too like um, two universities that really thought about digital change from an organisational perspective, not just uh, perhaps constrained to what academic staff do. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It was that uh, big picture thinking, which uh, which is part of the, the framework. Yes. Brilliant. Well, Deborah, you've had a long, extensive career and you've obviously networked quite a bit over those years. Who are two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning? Uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. Hmm. Only two. <laughs> this is really, really difficult. This is the hardest question, uh, yeah. I, I've listened to some of the other um, podcasts that you've done in this series so that I, I, I know that there are people that you've interviewed and people who've been cited, uh, but I can't go any further without citing Tony Bates, of course, who's been yeah. extremely influential. And the book that he and Albert Sangro wrote um, on managing technology in higher education was, yes. uh, was a great starting point for my thesis. Beyond that... One book, so three authors there, which which uh, particularly influenced me, uh, is a book called Conceptualising the Digital University by Bill Johnston, Sheila McNeil and Keith Smythe or Smith. I'm not quite sure how his name is pronounced. And uh, what was interesting about this book was that they took a critical pedagogy perspective, uh, but applied it all the way from strategy through to practice. Um, and that was absolutely right. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. In terms of uh, other people who I think have uh, very important perspectives to share, uh, Laura Chernovich from uh, the University of Cape Town, um, her yeah. body of work is impressive and she's made major contributions to strategic change. And uh, Anne-Marie Scott, Athabasca. If you look for Anne-Marie on Twitter, uh, in addition to her work at Athabasca University, where she is now, she writes very, very openly about the challenges of leadership, uh, about the challenges of digital education at the moment. So I would uh, really recommend uh, Anne-Marie. Excellent. Uh, Deborah, it's been an absolute privilege talking with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing about your thesis and about your work. And thank you too for being a leader and legend of online learning. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me, Mark. <laughs> oh, no worries at all. I should have done so a long time ago. You can learn more about Deborah and her work from our website. 
That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website www.onlinelearninglegends.com to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.